All right, we want to do a couple of things before we get started tonight. First of all, let me give you a quick praise report. All, everybody stand up with me, because you know we're about to pray, and then you can sit down. But I alone have to stand the whole time, and I'm glad to do it. Um, Easter weekend was just so amazing, and I want to, again, thank the, the praise team and the, all of the uh, media department, all of those guys and gals back there. Um, we preached last weekend and more people than I've ever preached to as a pastor in one weekend. <clears throat> That's right. Um, they tell me there were 3,472 people here. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. And that uh, 137 first-time guests. Now, that's just beautiful. I wish you could have seen it. Well, all the services were wonderful. That last one, the second one Sunday, the overflow room overflowed. And when we gave the invitation to respond to Christ, they started not just pouring down here, but they poured from the overflow room who were watching on screen. And about 15 from there came down in here. And so, and I saw pictures of the overflow room. It was so cool to see this thing totally packed. And it was neat, great, wonderful. So again, I, I was just so blown away by the music and by uh, just the worship and what they were able to do with um, the graphics and all that stuff that I don't have a clue about. And, and then our media people who are always back there, unseen, but they do a great job. And I appreciate that. Amen. All right, tonight we're on week three of the questions, but we're also launching our healing room. And so we're ready. If you are here for prayer and you want to go and get prayed for, for healing, um, they're ready. Now, who's going to escort them back there? Uh, nobody's there to escort them back there. David, can you do it? All right. Because they're already back there waiting for you. So if you want prayer for healing, David C. is headed towards the door. Meet him in the foyer, and he will lead you back. And... Um, then we'll pray for you. Amen? So, secondly, let me make sure I've got this right. Membership. Sunday, April 7th. You notice I'm not, a, I'm not an announcement maker. But April 7th, Sunday at 11 a.m., if you're interested in membership, they're launching a brand new Go the Distance. And we would love to have you there. So just show up at 11 we will show you where to go, and you can go through one hour, one time, and learn what we believe, what we're all about, what our vision is. You can ask questions and join the church and be a part of what God is doing here. How many of you are ready for questions to be answered? All right. Tonight, I, I'm once again going where angels fear to tread. But you know what? If it's in the Bible, I will say it. And so that's it. If it's in the Bible, I'll say it. Now, let's pray, and then I'm going to cover some, some big ones, all right? Father, we just thank you right now for the power of the living Word of God. And your Word, Lord, is a mighty Word, a healing Word, a strengthening Word, a peace-giving Word. And we pray right now in Jesus' name that you will answer our questions, uh, clear out the fog, get rid of the cobwebs in our mind, the questions, the areas of where we're not certain about what Scripture says. Lord, strengthen us and establish us in the faith tonight that we can give an answer to those who want to know where our peace comes from. In Jesus' name. Amen. We'll turn to your neighbor and tell them it's going to be good tonight. All right. Well, guess what we're on again, and I got more questions, so I'm going to deal with it one more time. This whole eternal security thing. It's, it's really, I've got more questions on this than on any of them. And as soon as I was done last week, different people handed me more questions 
about this issue. So I'm going to do it one more time and uh, cover a couple of those questions. And it's good stuff, and I'm thankful for the questions. Because if anything, we need to know about our salvation and where we stand. Now, here was the first question. As to eternal security, what about where in Revelations 3, Jesus says he will spew out of his mouth the lukewarm? And what about in John 15, where Jesus says the branch that doesn't bear fruit will be cast into the fire? All right, here we go. Let's deal with these one at a time. First, the passage out of the Revelation. Let's just go ahead and read the passage. Jesus is talking to the last church and the Laodicean church. I personally believe that's the church we're experiencing today. We're in the Laodicean church, the lukewarm church as a whole. Now, he says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works. He says that with every one of the churches. I know your works, that you're not cold and you're not hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will, say it with me everybody, vomit you out of my mouth. What a word. What a word. But this is out of the scriptures. Of course, King James says spew, but the real word is vomit. And when you vomit, you spew or hurl, as they say. All right. Now, look at what Jesus is saying here. This is, I don't want to be among these folks. Now, let's take it for a second. What does cold mean? I wish that you were cold or hot. Not too tough to answer that one. Cold means spiritually cold. Uh, Open, outright rejection of Christ, repudiating the gospel. He says, you're not cold. I mean, you're just not openly outright rebellious, rejecting Christ and repudiating Christianity. You've heard me say there's some churches you can ice skate to your seat. It's so cold in there spiritually. I mean, really, there's no fervor. There's no zeal. There's no smiles. There's no nothing. It's just stone cold religion. And it's why a lot of people seek an answer elsewhere. So Jesus says, I I wish you were at least cold or hot because I don't like you being in the middle and not stating where you are. But on the other hand, what does hot mean? Well, we know what hot means. Zealous, spiritually alive and awake and eager and fired up, as it were, for the Lord. He says, you're not that either. You're not cold. You're not hot. You're lukewarm. You're not boiling for, boiling for the Lord. I love that. I want a church boiling, red hot, crackling for the Lord with spiritual zeal for the Lord. You're not that and you're not cold. So what's lukewarm? Well, lukewarm is they are professing Christians who go to church, claim to know the Lord, But listen carefully to me. They're not saved. Say, how do you know that? Well, I'm going to show you a lot of reasons. He says to them a little bit later in a couple of verses, he says, I want you to get from me gold tried in the fire. That's faith. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, that's faith. Gold tried on the fire is faith. And then I want you to get on white garments. Well, white garments are always uh, a picture of, of the righteousness that God drapes us in. He proclaims us justified, righteous by his blood. So these folks are needing these things. They don't have them. They don't have that robe of righteousness. He says, I want you to get it from me. And I salve that you may see. They're blind. They said, or Jesus said to them, you say you're rich? And have need of nothing, but I say to you that you are miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire. So these folks were in that perilous condition of not being able to rightly assess 
their spiritual state. They were blind to the true condition they were in spiritually. If you had asked them, how are you doing spiritually? Oh, we're great. We're great. We have need of nothing. But then the Lord looks at it with his x-ray eyes and says, no, here's the truth. You're miserable, wretched, poor, poor, and blind and naked. There's no question in my mind. He's telling these folks, you're religious, but you need to be saved. Now, let me just show you. They're content with self-righteous religion. They are hypocrites playing games, playing church. They're the kind of people described in Matthew 7 where Jesus says, many are going to say to me in that day, Lord, 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 Lord. And I will say to them, depart from me. What's the next four words? I never knew you. That's Lyle to see you. Here we go again. You may have done many works in my name, said Jesus, and prophesied and cast out demons, but I never, I've never known you. You're religious, but you don't have a relationship with me. They're like those in 2 Timothy 3, 5, who Paul said would show up on the scene, particularly in the last days, who have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They look godly, but that's the outside shell. Inside, they're lost. They're like the Jews in Romans 10, who have a zeal for God, but not according to a true knowledge. So that's Laodicea. So when he says, if you don't repent and turn to me, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. He's saying that to people who haven't yet known him. They're just hypocrites, touched some way by Christianity, but they don't belong to Christ. And there's something obnoxious about them. They nauseate Christ. You know that doctors in the olden days, when they wanted to make somebody actually throw up, they would just give them lukewarm water. There's something about lukewarm that's sickening. Nothing worse than a lukewarm Coke. Or a lukewarm anything. They make Jesus sick. This lukewarm, this self-righteous religion. Now, how do we know this for sure? That they're lost. Because Revelations 3.20 that we often quote in invitations is spoken to them. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. Oh, wait a minute. What are you knocking on the door? You ought to be in the church. But he's not in this one. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him, sup with him, he with me. He's talking to the Laodicean church. Here we find Jesus Christ actually trying to get into his own church. So these folks are lost. Now that's my answer to the first one. Now the second question had to do with John 15, 5 through 6. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch. Here we go. If, if somebody doesn't abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and they throw them into the fire and they are burned. Now people read that and they say, well, that's talking about people who know the Lord, but they stop abiding in him and they're cut off and they lose their salvation. The number one question here is, who is the they? They gather them. If you look closely, this verse is about abiding in Christ. Read the whole chapter, John 15. A text without a context is a pretext. Always remember that. If you're ever going to interpret Scripture, you have got to interpret Scripture in context. What came before it, what came after it. Don't just pull a verse out and isolate it and draw a doctrine out of it. You've got you've to exegete, as we say in seminary, exegete the whole passage. And part of that is before and after. Now, here in all of John 15, it's talking about the believer's communion with him, not their union with him. 
Boy, I can hear those wheels turning. Stay with me. Big difference between communion and union. Union means I'm getting to know him. Communion is I'm abiding with him, relating to him, have an ongoing relationship with him. For instance, Jesus in verse 10 speaks of abiding in the Father. He says, quote, if you keep my commandments, you will do what? Abide in my love. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments and do what? Abide in his love. This is talking about relationship. This is talking about communion. If you want to know how to walk with God and practice the presence of God, then you obey him. The more you obey, the more joy you will have. The less you obey, the more discombobulated and restless and unpeaceful you will feel. So the whole John 15 is teaching us how to commune, how to abide, not how to keep union. So the Lord's message in John 15 is all about abiding and bearing fruit. The language of verse 6 is figurative, and it speaks of one who, through lack of communion with Christ, loses his testimony before men. It's men that gather and burn, not God. Now let me show you what I mean. Here's a corroborating verse, Matthew 5, 13. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. But if you as the salt, the witnesses of Christ, lose your flavor, then God is saying, where am I going to salt you? I can't use that church. Then he says, it is thenceforth good for nothing but to be what, everybody? Read it with me. Thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. What happens to a church that loses its testimony, its fire, its, its, its teaching, its, its sense of the presence of God? Even men throw you out and trample you down. And I'm telling you, that's what I think is happening in America right now. I don't believe America would be where it is if pulpits had held forth with the Word of God. I really don't. I really don't. We're in all this. God wants you successful and prosperous and rich and this and that and the other. But when I read Paul, Peter, James, John, and Jude, I don't hear that stuff. I hear the blood, the cross, heaven, hell, eternity, one way, sanctification, death to yourself. All those things, it's been lost in the West, and it's a tragedy. So right now, we're being trampled underfoot. Hopefully, it'll cause a lot of the churches to start standing up and say, I don't care what men think anymore. Here goes. Now, so in both of those cases, I don't believe that's talking about losing your salvation. It's talking about those who were never saved, and it's talking about those who lose union with or uh, uh, communion with him, and lose their testimony before men. I'm going to say again from last week, how do you get born again again? How many times do you get born again again? If I can get saved and lose my salvation, I, I, just follow me. I'm being logical. I'm not making fun of anybody. But, but, but if you think you can lose it, how many times can you lose it? Can you be born again again and again and again and again? And when a person reaches 80 and goes to be with the Lord, can they actually look back and say, well, in my lifetime, I messed up about 123 times and I was born again, 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 123 different times. I was saved, lost, saved, lost, saved, lost. No. What happens is if you sin, you lose communion with him, but he doesn't disown you as his child. And, uh, To me, that's very clear, but I hope I answered that now. I don't know about you, but I was into dinosaurs when I was a kid. I had all the dinosaur models, and I could name them. Brontosaurus, Stegosaurus, Triceratops, T-Rex, of course, Allosaurus, Pteranodon. I had them all. I knew them all. But now we have a problem because people want to know this. What about dinosaurs? When did they exist, and does the Bible talk about them? How many have ever wondered that? Come on, tell the truth. And and did you know that this one question causes young people going through junior high and high school, and usually junior high and high school, by the time they get out of high school, their faith is shaky at best. 
because they got evolution in school. And one of the great big questions that threw them was this dinosaur issue. Well, let me answer it. Dinosaurs were only big lizards. In fact, dino means terrible. Soar is a root of the word meaning lizard in Greek. So dinosaur means terrible lizard. Terrible lizard. Now this was its given name by the English scientist Richard Owen in 1842. Previously they were known as beasts or dragons. Now I'm going to give you a shock. They are in the Bible. Dragons as used in the Old Testament actually appear in quite a number of scriptures. Are you ready? Studying their appearance in the Bible will show that they were beasts of the most ferocious type. They are explicitly described in the Bible, much like our modern view of dinosaurs. Now, the Bible's not all about dinosaurs. It's about our salvation, but it mentions them. Now, the best two examples are Leviathan and Behemoth, both appearing in Job, the oldest book in the whole Bible. Job goes further back than any of the others, okay? Chapters 40 and 41. Let's look at Behemoth. Everybody say with me, Behemoth. That just sounds big, doesn't it? Behemoth. All right. Behemoth is much like the group of dinosaurs that scientists refer to to as Brachiosaurus. Brontosaurus would be in that category. Brachiosaurus, I believe, was even bigger than the Brontosaurus. Let's look at Job 40, 15 through 24 as a starting point. I want you to listen to this description. Here we go. Look now, says Job, at the behemoth, which I made. Now, this is God talking. God is talking here. I'm sorry, I said Job, but it's not. It's God. Look now at the behemoth, which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. See now, his strength is in his hips, and his power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar tree. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. His bones are like beams of bronze, telephone poles for bones. His ribs are like bars of iron. He's the first of the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. Surely the mountains yield food for him. All the beasts of the field play there. He lies under the lotus trees in a covert of reeds and marsh. You ever seen pictures of brontosaurus in a a marsh-like setting, eating vegetation? I, I have. Everybody's, whoa. <laughs> I mean, moving that big old tail. Watch this. The lotus trees cover him with their shade. The willows by the brook surround him. Indeed, the river may rage, yet he is not disturbed. He is confident, though the Jordan gushes into his mouth, though he takes it in his eyes, or one pierces his nose with a snare. End quote. That's Job. Job was just described a dinosaur. Scholars have erred in studying the behemoth here, and they have tried to call it the hippopotamus or the elephant. Well, that's just Job describing one of those two. Or I even heard it said a giant uh, crocodile. But this creature fed on grass had strength in its loins power in its belly, tail swaying like a cedar tree, tendons of the thigh that were closely knit, bones like tubes of bronze. Bronze is strong in bonds and can handle a large load. They have limbs like rods of iron, long and strong. It is secure, and one could not physically trap it and pierce its nose. This monster was untrappable. These alone, this description that we read in Job, show that it can't be the elephant and it can't be a hippopotamus because the hippo has short, stubby, medium limbs and the hippo can be trapped 
and its tendons are not closely knit, neither are they describing an elephant. The behemoth sounds like a dinosaur in the Brachiosaurus arena. Now, the Leviathan, as presented in Job 41, is also of the same nature and cannot be made into a pet. Can you imagine having a pet Leviathan? Can't put it in your backyard. Don't put the dogs out there with it. But it's also of the same nature. Look what it says about it. If you read Job 41, you'll see that it cannot be made into a pet. Any hope of subduing this creature is futile. It has fierce teeth. The back has a row of shields closely sealed together. Now, we've seen that in pictures of dinosaurs. Stegosaurus, that, that lumbering uh, dinosaur that had the plates all along its back, all the way down to the end of its tail where it came into like barbs. And he was a, I believe the Stegosaurus was a plant eater. But then we've seen pictures of other dinosaurs that scientists have been able to tell us look the way they have portrayed them. And they have these plate-like things going down their back. But Job described that way back in antiquity. And it sounds to me like he's describing it as a first eyewitness. He says of this creature, it has no equaled strength. The sword cannot kill it. And when it rises up, even the mighty man is terrified. That's not, a, that's not a hippopotamus or, or an elephant. It's a dinosaur, terrible lizard. There's also a mention of a flying serpent in the Bible. Did you know that? Isaiah 30, verse 6 talks about a, the flying serpent. This could be a reference to one of the pterodactyls, which are popularly thought of as flying dinosaurs, such as the pteranodon. And I, I know exactly what they're talking about. I've seen them in many books. Huge creatures, winged creatures, featherless creatures. Well, Pastor Jeff, why does this matter? Because I'm showing you that you can't let evolutionists tell you that you must choose to either believe the story of evolution and dinosaurs who lived way before men who lived millions and millions of years ago before there was ever the first caveman, if, you know, I want to call him a caveman, and that it is impossible that dinosaurs live with men. I believe they were around because these were eyewitnesses. Now, hang with me a minute. The Bible tells us that God created different kinds of land animals on day six of creation week. You can read about that in Genesis 1, 24 through 25. Because dinosaurs were land animals, this must have included the dinosaur kinds. But you don't really believe that. Let me ask you, do you really believe evolution? When you think about the claims of evolution, I tell you, it takes more faith to believe in evolution than it does God. I believe that the evolution, the evolutionary proposition is preposterous. Something can't come out of nothing. God created all of it ex nihilo. God's the only one that can bring something out of nothing. Ex nihilo. God said, let there be and something came out from nothing except it came from the Word of God. And there is no other explanation for what we see. This universe is so clearly designed. It's designed. Then what happened to the dinosaurs, you're asking, you're wondering? I believe the Scriptures account that two representatives of all the kinds of air-breathing land animals, including the dinosaur kinds, went aboard Noah's Ark. You're telling me T-Rex was on Noah's Ark? Yeah, I think he could have been. You're telling me T-Rex came from nothing? 
All those left outside the ark died in the cataclysmic circumstances of the flood. Now, I want to say that slowly. All of the other dinosaurs, as well as all the other animals that God made, except two of every kind, perished in the cataclysm of the flood, which now has been abundantly proven to have happened by scientists, by archaeologists, by those who study the ground and layers of ground. And I could go into all that, but anyway, many of their remains became fossils. After the flood, here's what happened. The remnant of the land animals, including dinosaurs, came off the ark and they lived in the present world along with people. But because of sin, the judgments of the curse and the flood greatly changed earth. The whole climate changed after the flood. That's why before the flood, men lived 800, 900 years. After the flood, his lifespan began to drop. It dropped precipitously. It dropped and dropped and dropped until we find David talking about man getting his three score and ten and then dying. Post-flood climatic change, lack of food, disease, and man's activities caused many types of animals to become extinct, not just the dinosaurs. We, we, we can name a bunch of species that have become extinct. The dinosaurs, like many other creatures, simply died out. There's also physical evidence that dinosaur bones, now, now I got this recently. Dinosaur bones are not millions of years old. Let me quote science to you. Scientists from Montana State University found T-Rex bones that were not totally fossilized. Sections of the bones were like fresh bone and contained what seems to be blood cells and hemoglobin. If these bones were really tens of millions of years old, like we're told by evolutionists, then the blood cells and hemoglobin would have long before totally disintegrated. In an article, I was reading the news. Uh, I have a little place I go, Free Republic. Let me give a little plug for Free Republic. I, I get most of my news from, on the net from Free Republic. And it's a great place for conservative news where you're not driven crazy by loony liberals. All right. <laughs> now, um, in an, <laughs> we'll edit that out. No, we won't edit that out. Ah, leave it. Anyway, in an article in the news... I read just yesterday, this was a yesterday article in the news. It was reported that, quote, soft tissue is turning up in all sorts of supposedly ancient fossils. The latest example comes from the Hell Creek Formation in Montana, which is supposed to be about 65 million years old. So the fossil is assumed to be that old as well. Now, the fossil in question that they found is a horn from a triceratops. You know, the big bony plate around the head with the three horns sticking out. The triceratops. Bad dude. Bad. He's one you didn't want to meet. He could whoop a T-Rex sometimes. But watch this. The fossil in question was, was a horn from a triceratops specimen. If there was soft tissue... It is impossible that Triceratops is 65 million years old. And they found in the horn soft tissue. Now, all I want you to do is think about that. So, well, Jeff, Pastor Jeff, it's not even intellectually respectable for you to question evolution. Here's what I'm starting to think that it's not intellectually respectable not to question it. I'm serious. Nothing has plunged several generations into spiritual darkness and unbelief like the message of evolution. 
I think it deserves great scrutiny. And I personally believe that that theory, and it's only a theory, it's never been proven. Never. It has never been proven. They've never found the missing link. It's never been proven. They have never been able to find the in-between evolutionary stages of one thing turning into another. They've never been able to find them. They're not there. And, and, And I ask you, if evolution is true, then how come we can't look around us right now and see evolution happening? If it's been going on all these millions and millions and trillions and billions of years, why can't we see it happening right now in front of us? It's not there. So, so I believe that we need to take another look at it and be open to the possibility, and I'm just talking now to unbelievers, that there is actually a God who created and designed what we see, hear, taste, touch, and smell. Okay? Now, we're really switching gears now because last week we talked about ghosts. And I had a question handed to me before I got out of this room. And the question was, why was, if you say there's no ghosts and the departed souls of a dead person don't actually wander around in the world because of unfinished business, haunting people, if that's not in the Bible, then how in the world was Saul able to contact Samuel from the dead? Was it the ghost of Samuel? Well, you know what? Great question. Last time, I've already kind of covered this, so let me go on. How then did the deceased Samuel appear to Saul via the lady called the Witch of Windor. Let's read the account. This is some account. Saul's at the end of his days. He's crazy. Lost his mind. David has been being persecuted and haunted and tracked and stalked by this man for 10 years. David has been living with his men in caves and in open fields, always sleeping with one eye open because Saul was out to kill him. Now, the Bible says in 1 Samuel 28, Samuel was dead and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. When Saul had his mind, he did the right thing. He kicked out the mediums, the spiritists, the witches, the witchcraft people. He removed them from the land. It was wise. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. So here comes the Philistines. Now when Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but you know what? The Lord didn't answer him. Not by a dream, not by the Urim, or not by prophets. God had closed his mouth to Saul because Saul had disobeyed him, uh, disobeyed him, disobeyed him, disobeyed him until that communion was totally broken. God wasn't talking to him. Terrible place to be. Now, Saul then said to his attendants, I got to hear something from the other world. So find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. Somebody popped off and said, well, there's one in Endor. Then the woman asked, so he went to the the witch at Endor. I'm, I'm jumping ahead a few verses. So when he heard there was one in Endor, he went and found the woman. A medium is, is that person that calls up supposedly the, the spirits or the souls of dead people and, and communicates with them. And she said to Saul, not knowing that it was Saul, whom shall I bring up for you? And Saul said, Samuel, the prophet. When the woman saw Samuel, she was just doing her little conjuring thing. And lo and behold, all of a sudden, there was Samuel. The medium freaked out. And it says, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. She connected the dots. Samuel showed up to talk to Saul. 
Now the king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, well, here's what I see. A ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like? He asked. He looks like an old man wearing a robe and he's arising. Then Saul knew that it was Samuel. He bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Now I'll stop the story there. Just in a nutshell, Samuel said, why have you bothered me? Saul said, I need questions about this, that, and the other. And Samuel said, by this time tomorrow, you'll be dead. And told him his life was up. Not a great word from God. But now, here's the question. Was this a ghost? No. Don't forget that in the transfiguration on the mountain with Jesus... Both Moses and Elijah appeared and conversed with Jesus. And this happened in front of the three disciples, James uh, and John and Peter. They saw Moses and Elijah, and Jesus acknowledged Moses and Elijah, who were visible standing there. And not only were they visible, they were somehow recognizable. Because Peter knew who they were and named them. But they were not ghosts. Moses and Elijah, that was not a ghost. They were apparently the glorified bodies of the two men that had long before died. And God allowed them to manifest one on Jesus' right hand and one on the left. Moses representing the law. Elijah representing the prophets. And Jesus, Jesus was all both of those all together. He was, he was the fulfillment of the law. He was the greatest prophet. He was the consummation of both of them. So that's why they were there. But they weren't ghosts floating around earth spooking people. They were there by God's order. Now, I believe this event with Samuel was the same thing. It was not the great prophet's wandering soul unable to rest. God had a special purpose for sending him to inform Saul of his imminent death. I like what one commentator said. Let me read it. Quote, I believe that the woman of Endor had no power over Samuel and that no incantation can avail over any departed saint of God, nor indeed over any human disembodied spirit. Samuel really came, but not because the medium called for him. He wasn't obeying any medium. Samuel appeared because God had a special purpose for it. This king, Saul, had come to his last 24 hours. So that's, that's what it was. And no, it's not a ghost. And no, it's not a contradiction of what we said. There are no ghosts. There's demons, but there's no ghosts. Amen? Amen. Now, just like last week, how many of you think you have seen a ghost? Well, now nobody's going to fess up to it. Before, last week, before I talked this, a whole bunch of you went, yeah. But now, oh no, it was a demon. All right. How many of you think you saw a, a demon? Look at all those hands go up. All right. Now let's, let's, let's really shift gears again. Are y'all with me tonight? You get anything out? All right. Let's shift gears again. Here we go. Is there really a scripture that says, God helps those that help themselves. No. However, the scripture is clear that God expects able-bodied people to work and take care of their own needs. Now, that's a fact. Now, let me show you the Bible. Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Now, I want to say right here, if you've looked for a job and can't find one, you're looking at the last guy that would ever condemn you because we help people all the time, more than most churches do. But if you're able-bodied and you're not looking and you're happily, contentedly living off the government, you're sinning. Now, here's why. You're sinning against yourself. Well, how am I sinning against myself, Pastor Jeff? I'm feeling pretty good. I'm getting something for nothing. Watch. 
the cancerous welfare system that is financially ruining America is unbiblical. It's unbiblical. Um, and I know I, I'm not condemning people. You know me. I'm just telling you that, that as of tonight, 50 million people are on food stamps. Um, half of America is on some form of government assistance. That is just completely stunning to me. It just, welfare destroys the souls of its recipients. Now here's how it does it. It robs them of incentive, of creativity, and of personal responsibility. Did you know that God created us to work? Even before man fell, God gave us work to do. Did you know that? I mean, for, for some people, work is a four-letter word. And I, and, but I'm going to tell you, it is a four-letter word, but it's a good one. Because by working, we create, we produce, we get a sense of fulfillment, of usefulness, of meaning. And if we don't ever have to work, and we simply are taken care of, like a little baby is taken care of, there is something in the human being that not only never develops, but that devolves. God told Adam, I want you to take care of the garden. That's physical work. And I want you to name all of the creatures I've created. Major mental work. I don't know how he did it. I mean, I would have run out after five creatures. It would have been, you know, elephant, funt, Ella. I mean, how do you come up? with thousands of names, but he had, he had physical work given to him and mental work given to him before the fall. I, right now, the welfare system in America is about to destroy the country. It is unsustainable. The day will come, we will wake up, and there will be a collapse of some kind in the financial sector. We're headed the way of Greece that has collapsed financially. We're headed the way of Europe, which is so overwhelmed by welfare and entitlements that they can't breathe financially. Your taxes are going to go up and up and up and up and up to take care of all the entitlements and welfare that is being divvied out to people. If I was able-bodied and lost my job, I would do everything and anything. Listen, I believe this. If you can't get your golden career, get something under the golden arches. Get anything. But, but work. I could, I could stay there, but I'm not going to. Here's, here's the next one. Do babies go to heaven? Great question. There's nothing harder than performing a funeral over a child. And I've done that several times. It's really hard. It, unless you have the window of Scripture to open your eyes. Do babies go to heaven? What about aborted children? 50 million of them now. More than that. A whole generation gone. Where did they go? Just short-circuited into eternity? Where'd they go? And what is the age of accountability? Let me answer that. Yes, babies go to heaven. And I have scriptural proof. While we're all born in sin and shaped in iniquity, an infant, a little baby, has no ability to understand the gospel, to repent, or do anything else involved in the salvation process. The great Bible passage on this is found in 2 Samuel 12, 23. David's sin with Bathsheba produced a child. This child uh, died shortly after being born as part of God's chastening on David. David fasted and prayed all night long for this baby to survive. He looked apparently to the people in the palace that he was about to have a breakdown because they were watching him like a hawk. David, he's not looking good. He's really not looking good. We're going to watch him closely because the child is not getting better. The child is getting worse. As the sun rose the next morning, the child died. They went in there thinking they were going to have to, to get a spatula and scoop David up off the ground. 
they thought they were going to have to prevent him from suicide. They were concerned about him. But they went in, and he's combing his hair. He's eating a meal. He has shaved, and he's put on his clothes, and he's looking like he's going to church on a Sunday morning. And they said, what's the matter with you? We thought you were going to be all down in the gutter over this. Here's what he said. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? Now read the next part with me. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. That's profound. That shows you, A, somebody that's deceased doesn't return to you. But David knew my little boy went to heaven. And one day when I die, I will see him again. What a great truth. Our God is a good God. Amen? So all those aborted babies, I believe every one of them are in heaven. Does that justify doing it? Not by a long shot. Their blood is crying from the ground. And God's going to answer it sooner than later over this country. He will. It, it is what slavery was to America in the 1800s, a blind spot where half the country could not see that it was wrong. Abortion is the same thing today. It's a national blind spot. Half the country can't see that it's wrong. I believe the Civil War was partially God's judgment because of slavery. And I believe there's going to be a judgment, several judgments on America because of abortion. But let's move on. Here's the last one. Are homosexuals born that way? Now, we're watching, you can't live in America and not be hit with this issue every day. We're actually in the Supreme Court about to decide whether or not two men or two women can be married. And 10 years ago, that would have been unthinkable. It would have been, it would have been unthinkable to, to even bring it up. 20 years ago, you'd have been laughed out of the room. But now it's real because, well, let me answer it. Are they born that way? I don't claim to understand all the complexities behind same-sex attraction. I have known people who um, are homosexual and lesbian, and um, I have liked them. I've loved them. I, 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 they, they know where I stand with it, but the last thing I am is homophobic, which is a stupid term, because phobic comes from phobos, a Greek word meaning to be terrified of something. I'm not terrified of homosexuals or lesbians or ghosts or anything else. I do fear the Lord. But watch this. The ones that I've known, and I've sat down and talked to them at length, and it's broken my heart because I've had some of them say to me, never in my life have I been attracted to a member of the opposite sex. So I must be born this way. See, we're assuming that because we have a craving or a... a propensity towards a certain temptation. We're now assuming that that means we were wired by God to be that way, that we're born that way. That has given rise to the handle being used to get same-sex marriage validated by the Supreme Court is that it's a civil issue. And they are saying it's like the civil rights issue of the 60s. But wait a minute. It's really not. Now let me explain. Civil rights issue of the 60s had to do with what color your skin was. Nobody has a choice about what color their skin is or their eyes or their hair. If they're tall, short, skinny, fat, well, you can deal with fat some. But you know what I'm saying. Big bone, thin bone. You're, you're, you're born the way you're born. And, and so Blacks in the 60s were, were dealing with the civil rights issue, and their case was totally justified because they were being discriminated against, and it was wrong. That's civil rights. But now we're being told that the gay marriage issue is the same thing 
And they're pointing back to the 60s, saying, we're fighting for our civil rights like they did in the 60s. But wait a minute. That assumes you were indeed born that way. But if you weren't born that way, it's not a civil rights issue. Okay, now hang on. I want you to know, I empathize with those who struggle greatly in this area. I do. As I do with people that struggle with other weaknesses. Because that's not the only weakness people struggle with. Scripture says we all deal with what it calls besetting sins. That sin that gets you more than any other sin. When it comes to homosexuals being born this way, I can only turn to the Scriptures for my answer. Because as I've told you in this question and answer time, Watch closely, church. It matters what your source of truth is. And everybody has got to come to this. You're either going to decide, you may not be thinking it consciously, but you will decide if your truth is going to begin with Scripture or it's going to begin with the culture. Christians are supposed to gain the root of all of their truth from Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Okay? All Scripture. So I either get my truth from Scripture or I get it from the culture. Where are you getting your truth? Do you get it from People Magazine? Do you get it from Cosmo? Do you get it from television? God forbid that gutter of, of secularism and Marxism and anyway. So I can only turn to the scriptures for my answer about this because you get your, you get your truth from revelation or from what you decide is true. Now, nowhere in scripture is a positive light put on this practice. Nowhere. Second, it is not just an Old Testament issue. You hear, you hear those that are fighting for the same-sex marriage thing and all that. You hear them argue, well, that's just Old Testament Leviticus. You're just going back to the Old Testament, and the Old Testament's done and gone. It's not just Old Testament. Key scriptures address it in the New Testament, among other things. Romans 1, 22 through 27, which you can't preach anymore in Canada, says, professing to be wise, they became fools. And change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, because they rejected God and worshiped the creation rather than the creator, God gave them up. Three times in Romans 1, we're told God gave them up. What did he give them up to? The first time, uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. So he gave them up to sexual uncleanness. Now, Paul is going to tell us what he means by that. Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, here's the second God gave them up. Gave them up to vile passions. What's a vile passion? For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Now notice he uses the word natural. Natural. In other words, what he's saying is, this is the way God made us. God made man to be with woman. That's why when Adam saw Eve, he went, whoa, man. I'm I'm just trying to lighten it up here a little bit. Now watch. (laughs) So... Look what he says. They gave up what's natural. Now, this is the Word of God. This isn't Jeff. The Bible is my book. I'm called to preach it. I'm just reading it. Natural. They gave up what is natural. Then verse 27, likewise, also the men, leaving the what? Natural use of the woman, burned in their lusts for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves, receiving in their bodies the penalty 
of their error. So the Bible says it's not natural and it's an error. Now I'm teaching my book. Anybody can go read this. This is what it says. I'm just reading Romans 1 to you. Now, you don't like Romans 1? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators. Now, what's in a fornicator? Fornicator is sex before marriage. You know, I'm amazed. It, when, I was, when I came to Christ and got spirit-filled and got all excited about ministry and stuff and was single, I was a youth elder uh, in a huge uh, Baptist church, Beverly Hills Baptist Church, that had experienced a visitation from God. We had a couple of thousand youths that we were ministering to. And I was a youth elder. And me and the other youth elders used to get together. And there was no confusion at all about sex before marriage was a sin. We did, we, and so we would get together and say, hey, man, how you doing with temptation? Well, you know, I got real tempted here and there, but I'm fighting it. And, well, let's pray together. And we would stand with each other because we all knew. Now, it goes without saying we wouldn't have dreamed of shacking up. Because then we would have known, our church would have found out for one thing, but God would have known before the church. And, we, and, and, and yet I'm amazed that you'll have people that are coming to church. And I'm, I, again, I'm not condemning, but, but I am called to teach the Scripture. And because there's not teaching like this, our country is being flooded. So we need to be clear on what God really says, because this is my source of truth. Um, they'll come to church, hallelujah, praise the Lord, kumbaya, they'll raise their hands and fellowship, but you'll find out they're shacking up. And they truly don't understand why that's wrong. And then you'll talk to them and say, well, what, what difference does a piece of paper make? We're married in the eyes of God. Oh, really? Then what was Jesus visiting when he did his first miracle? A wedding. And what did he bless with his first miracle? A wedding between a man and a woman. Okay. Now, so we will have to explain. No, it's not just a piece of paper. It's you making a covenant before God in, in the presence of witnesses. And until then, you, don't de- you have no right to be shacking up as a believer. Hitting the hay with somebody. When, when you're not married... Well, God, God knows we're in love. Listen, can I give you, let me tell you, listen carefully to me. Love does not trump truth. It doesn't do it. Love, see, we have, we have, we have made a God out of love. Well, if I love him, oh, I just love him. So it makes all, it makes all the wrong right because I'm, I'm sanctifying it with my love. No, 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 no. Because your love will die one day. Or, or ebb. No. Truth trumps emotion. Okay. Amen, Pastor Jeff. Preach it. This is what I came for tonight. All right. Now, let's read. I got hung up there on fornicators, but let's move on. Nor idolaters, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. Now, that's two, what, what, what's the difference? One of them is male prostitutes, and the other is men with men. That's why the two words. So it's not just, he's not just picking on, on that one, and the, the, it froze up here for some reason. This happens every week, and I don't know why. The devil's mad. It's still not working. It is? Well, it's not back there. There we go. No. Okay, we're almost done anyway. Now, back up to verse 9, please. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous. Now, is, is, is he in this list picking out homosexuals? No. It's just one of many that he's listing. 
nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Next. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You were murderers, you were thieves, you were all these things, not just homosexuals or fornicators or adulterers. But God delivered these people from all those things. So knowing this, uh, you can go the other direction, please, Judy. I'm sorry, y'all. This happens and keep going. All right, I'll just look back here. Okay? Let, if you can just get me to the end, we will be fine because we're almost there. Devil gets mad when you. No, you're going the other wrong way. Um, there we go. Keep going. Okay, we want to go to 1 Timothy. Okay, that's where. Okay, let's go to 1 Timothy. We're almost there. There it is. Here's the last verse. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and the insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, fornicators, there that is again, for those practicing homosexuality, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. And each of these passages, homosexuality is presented as a sin alongside other sins, all of which can be repented of and out of which the sinner can be delivered. Now, think with me for a moment, and I'll close with this. If Scripture condemns homosexuality along with all those other things it listed, then it has to be a choice or else a just God could not judge a person for doing what he had no ability to resist. Isn't that right? Yes, there may be strong cravings toward it. Yes, it may be a great temptation for some. But Scripture assures us that the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. Let me read it to you as we close. Let's stand and we'll read this together. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure it. And the first part of that is, no temptation has taken you, but such as is common to men. So my answer, are they born that way? I, I can't come to that conclusion. or God would not be able to judge them for it. So do I pray for them? As I do all people who need to be delivered, um, forgiven, and come into the fullness of Christ. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for answering our questions tonight. Thank you for the power of your word. We pray in Jesus' name that, Lord, you will move in such a way that your word will prevail again in this country. We thank you, Lord, for gracing us and helping us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, next time.